Let's pray. Father, may our hearts um, be hungry for you today. May we long for you. And may you be the one who fills us, we pray. We invite your Holy Spirit here in Christ's name. Amen. I was reading this uh, past week or so by a lady named Nancy Gibbs. She writes in Time magazine. uh, And the article that she writes is called The Happiness Paradox. Why are Americans so cheery? Happiness is a sappy word and a flimsy concept, she says. More than contentment, several octaves lower than joy. But happiness is what pollsters test and economists track, however clumsily, so we're stuck with it as the medium for measuring our mood. Not surprisingly, that mood has bounced around over the years, and with the general sense of well-being hitting its lowest points in 1973, 1982, 1992, and 2001. You know anything common about each of those? All recession years. So why is it, she writes, that at least some aspects of the Great Recession of 2009 appear to have made people feel better? In January 2008, the Gallup Healthways Wellbeing Index was launched. It was designed to work like the Dow Jones Average of Attitude. At least 1,000 people are surveyed daily, 35 days a year. And when the markets tanked last fall, happiness did too. And anyone who has lost his or her job, house, or health care is probably still in a world of pain. But she writes, here's the funny thing. This past summer, overall well-being was higher than it was in the summer of 2008 prior to all that. In fact, the latest report finds America's cheeriness at an all-time high. And then she gives some, some figures behind that one done by the Pepsi Optimism Project, POP. She says, if you don't trust soda company polls, would you trust Consumer Reports? Consumer Reports confirms that we don't plan to spend much money on Christmas, but the vast majority of us, 87%, expect this holiday season will be as happy as or even happier than last year's, according to the Happiness Index. We already knew that money can buy only comfort, not contentment. Happiness correlates much more closely with our causes and connections than with our net worth, she writes. And here's an interesting fact. About, in this last year, about a million more people volunteered for causes. And she writes, which it makes you wonder, is it a coincidence that eight of the ten happiest states in the country also rank in the top ten for volunteering? Is that interesting? Well, happiness is interesting because like Thanksgiving, I believe it defies the odds. Happiness is, is, in this measure, interesting in the light of our times. But Thanksgiving, as we look at the passage of Scripture, the story that Jesus um, not told, but actually lived out, it was an actual occurrence in his life, reveals some very interesting odds about Thanksgiving. In fact, I have, have called this message the lousy odds of Thanksgiving based on this story. Because you would think the most thankful people would be the most full and most blessed, but that's not necessarily the case. Look, if you would, at Luke 17. In this passage of Scripture, there's a story of ten lepers who are healed by Jesus. And what I want you to note as we read through this is there are some 
some very interesting similarities, but one startling difference. As you begin in verse 11, it says, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the borders between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then Jesus said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now look at the similarities between the ten. They each have the same disease, leprosy. Each of them stand about the same distance. It says they stood afar. They have the same determination, each one of them. They shouted loudly. They have the same desire. They yell out, have pity on us, or, or, or show an act of mercy is what they're asking. And they're each given the same directive. Go, show yourselves to the priest. And then there's one startling difference. Verse 17, Jesus asked, we're not all cleansed. Where are the other nine? There's one startling difference. Only one returned to give thanks. Ten percent. One out of ten. Not very good odds, right? In fact, downright lousy. Well, I've wondered as we celebrated Thanksgiving, as we move into Christmas and we'll be getting gifts and we'll be celebrating with people and going to all kinds of different events and social parties and things like that. And, and after we've come out of this and we're in this what I call the holiday stretch, I, I wonder how thankful will my life be? What does it mean for me to be thankful? What does it mean for you to be thankful? Are you a part of the one out of ten or are you more like the five, six, seven, eight, nine of the ten? Where's your heart? I want us to look at the implications of what I call these lousy odds. And the first thing I want you to notice is that the small percentage of those who gave thanks is remarkable in light of the seriousness of the disease. The small percentage is remarkable when you think about the condition of the, the, that this disease placed them in. You would think that all ten would have returned because of these horrible conditions of this disease that they found themselves in. This is not just a toothache. This is not a hangnail. It's not just a lost phone, you know. It's not a credit card that got misplaced. This is a life that has been devastated by a disease. The dreaded disease, leprosy. It's, it's a disease that not only um, had implications physically, but in all other ways it had implications so that it actually destroyed your life until the point it was cursed and would die. It was an extensive, all-pervasive disease. It was a death sentence in every form, in every realm of life. Socially, 
It meant that you were isolated and an outcast. You actually had to leave your family and your friends and move out of town and you would find some others with the same disease and you would live on the outskirts of a town somewhere out in the barren desert off on your own with this group if you could find a group of people. You were isolated from those you love most. The law states in Leviticus 13 verse 46 that as long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. And if you look at verses 11 and 12 and you read this, it says, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And you find out where he meets him when you get to verse 12. As he was going into a village. It was on the outskirts of the town, you know, on the borders of that that city that as he's going in, he sees or he's really confronted by these ten lepers. Jewish law required that they be cast out and cut off from the community. And you might think that's harsh, but they did that for the sake of the health of everyone else. In fact, there were specific requirements on how close you could come to a healthy person if you had this. In fact, Luke 17, 12, and 13 says they stood at a distance and called out a loud voice. Gives you the idea of this separation. Well, there are laws of ancient history, not just in, 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 in Jewish recorded history, also in ancient history, where if a leper had come down with leprosy, they were, in, in some cases, they said that you had to stand at least six feet away from someone who's healthy. And if the wind was blowing, you know, the wind's blowing behind your back, you have leprosy towards someone... There were laws that said you had to stand a hundred feet away. Because it was contagious, at least as much as they could understand. And, and so you get this picture of these guys who are calling out from probably 50, 60, maybe a hundred feet away. It's probably a windy day. That's my guess. Anyway, so they're socially isolated. They're cut off from all their family and their friends. They, they weren't celebrating Thanksgiving with their family. They weren't singing I'll be home for Christmas. They never would be because they had this dreaded disease. And they were socially removed from those who they loved. Physically, it was a very disfiguring and fatal form of a disease. You would in, with, le- with leprosy, in, in many of the conditions of this skin condition, because the Bible here will often just speak of a skin condition, but primarily of leprosy, which this is what is believed that these ten had, what will happen is that you lose feeling. And when you would lose feeling and you would get kind of scabs and other scars on your, on your body, you would bump maybe your finger or get your toe jammed or stepped on, and you wouldn't even feel it. And the pro- what happens when that happens over and over again, the reason God gives us nerves and pain is to awaken us to... A reality. But if you lose that, what happens is eventually infection sets in and, and, and you lose actual limbs. You lose fingers. You begin to lose your hand. It, it is, it's a disease that physically creates you um, to be this disfigured, monstrous looking individual. That was the effects of leprosy. It was a slow and painful death. Body parts falling off. Over time, you do this a very semblance of who you were. You wouldn't even be recognized. It was an ugly, wasting disease. Emotionally, it filled you with a sense of shame and a feeling of being completely unwanted. Completely unwanted. Not only the loss of feeling in the body parts would cause you to look physically ugly, but it would devastate your internal world. You would emotionally shut down. For safety and the health of others, 
you were forced to notify other people because this disease could be contagious. And so laws were written. It's not common when you think of our antiseptic society and our antiseptic age for us to understand that. I remember my father would tell us stories of when he had scarlet fever or different things. They would actually, they would actually quarantine themselves in their house and put something up on the door of their house so people wouldn't go near that. Anybody remember that those days? Look, there's people who are going, I remember that. My grandmother told us before they would, you know, go to undertakers and, and as they were grieving, they wouldn't take the body somewhere. They'd often take the body and place it in their, in one of the rooms of their house. And that's where the funeral, in a sense, or the, that whole experience of death was so, we, we live so removed from that. And, and all of a sudden we get H1N1 and we get a little bit of the feeling of what that's like, right? Because people stand up and we say, when you greet each other now, would you please say hello, but don't touch each other, right? Well, we're, we're talking about this emotional, I, I believe, totally torn up world. Leviticus 13.45, for the sake of other people. This is a health reason, benefit, like putting a sign on the door of a house of a person with scarlet fever. They re, were required to do four things. Listen to this. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. Now you think about it and you go, man, that's a really rotten thing to make someone do emotionally. That would just ruin your life, would it not? I mean, you've got to walk around with your, toes, your clothes torn and your hair messed up. You've got to be covering your mouth with maybe cloth or with your hand, and you have to constantly be yelling, I'm dirty, I'm infectious, I'm unclean. And you imagine doing that, looking that way, because what you're stating is what's going on in your whole system is making your whole life this way. You've got to get it out there so people know. And I think about that, and I think in the sense of people shouting those things and looking that way, people who live with hidden shame, you know what I mean. You know what it means to have been abused or in some ways to have had uh, shame-filled experiences where none to your even your own fault. Sometimes you didn't do a thing, and you live with this internal shame, and you experience this emotionally. This is what they are experiencing. And spiritually... This disease was often seen as divine punishment. It was, you would look at people like that in that day in that Jewish culture and often they would say, well, those are cursed people. They've been damned by God. Why else would they be so rejected and removed? And when you think about it, in the light of the seriousness of this disease, you would think the odds of thanksgiving would go up. Would you not? Wouldn't you think that they would all come back and be just walking along, feeling the healing power of God rush to their body, seeing their hands cleansed, they would go, whoa, and they would turn. But I think about ourselves. The Word of God makes it very clear that our hearts are stained with sin, and sin is really selfishness. And when selfishness is lived out in a daily lifestyle and pattern, it, it basically will cut you off from others. That's what the Word of God says. When we talk about hell, it means an eternal choice, continually moving into selfishness, that, that basically destroys all relationships and cuts you off from God and from other people. And, and you can live that way eternally if you want to, unless someone heals you. And you would think that all believers 
when they come and they are coming before this God and we're singing about this grace and this great, incredible God, you would think that when they were singing about the joy of God and the grace and the love, they would be louder than you will hear at the Metrodome today. Now, I realize we do this week after week and so after a while. It's easy for things like that to get taken for granted. I have this belief that the quotient of gratefulness goes up when you have a deeper understanding of the seriousness of the condition that you are in. So, for instance, if let's say you're in a car and you're there alone and for some reason you're in this car and you're trapped and you can't get out for, you know how these new doors and all the electronic stuff and it, all of a sudden you can't get out, it's locked, you're locked in. So you use your cell phone, you call someone, someone comes and they come to your rescue and they they magically get the door open and you are grateful, right? You're feeling grateful because you could have been in there a few more hours. But let's just imagine that you are in a car, locked in the car, and I say this with a sense of um, of awareness that I didn't have a week ago. We've had at our home uh, a house full, and we've had in our home an 18-month, a 3-year-old, and a 6-year-old. And the 18-month-old is, I mean, 5 in the morning is uh, making noises and running around and doing all these things. Wonderful thing. (laughs) Vacation weekend, you know. Anyway, so you're in the car and you have an 18-month-old in in closed space. But you're not just up here in northern Minnesota. You're down in Phoenix. It's the summer and it's 110 degrees. And as you're in there for about a 45 minutes or an hour trying to get out and you finally get a hold of someone, you finally get someone to get you there and they open the door. How are you feeling? Really grateful. And then I thought, let's just amp it up one more. Let's say you're driving along on an icy road. You hit this patch of ice. You go skidding off into a lake. It's not yet frozen. And you're going in there with your little two 18-month-old next to you. And I, I was trying to think what would be worse, being in Arizona or doing this. But anyway, let's just make this the worst one. And you're going down and you're sinking. And your life is sinking before your eyes. And you're frantic because it's not just your life, but it's this little one that you love. And you, you find out that someone comes along and they rescue you. They get you out. What's your quotient of thankfulness and gratefulness like? You see, the more in tune we are to the condition of what's going on in our heart and lives, the more grateful we are when someone comes and relieves that. That's why when I was doing this series on, on values and I was, it was speaking on growing in community and I was just struck with the fact that just think if every week we had people, when they came up, they would grab the mic and they would introduce themselves and they would say, Hi, I'm Kevin. I am a sinner, selfish through and through. It would just keep us at that floor, basement level of gratitude that says, I can't believe. There's this, this, this God-man named Jesus. Well, when you look at that in the seriousness of the condition, you'd think a whole lot more would have come back when only one did. And then the small percentage is explainable when you look at it in the light of the, the insensitivity of the nine. 
Here are their nine. And, and we're told the one is a Samaritan, the others are Jews. And, and, and for some reason, these are, these are really church-going people. Let's look at it this way. This is like you and me who come Sunday mornings, and, and maybe you're here for the first time, and, and, and you, you're not a part of that crowd, or you, 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 you're, you're here and you're going, I'm not real religious. But let's say you are more, quote, in that sense, church-going. These are the ones that experience this. And, and for some reason, their insensitivity shocks Jesus. Ingratitude takes a lot of different forms. Sometimes it takes the form of just being too busy. Can you imagine these nine? All of them are healed the same way. It says in Scripture, it says in verse 14, Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, every one of them had enough faith and trust to receive cleansing. They're going and they're excited and their, their bodies are being touched. And as they're going, one of them turns. But the other nine, in their mind, I'm just, you know, I'm going to play like maybe this happened. They're thinking some thoughts like, I'm just, I've got to get home. You know, you'd say go see the priest. Uh, i I, I got to get back there. He can tell me I'm clean. Then I can get my house in order. I can see my family. I got a job to get going. I just, it's, I'm just too busy to meaningfully stop and express thanksgiving. Oh, can't we all be there? Just too busy to slow down. I'm just too busy to take time and to say, God, because you've helped me, I want to help someone else out of a grateful heart. God, because someone's given to me, because you've given to me, I want to share the wealth that you've given me to someone else. God, I'm just too busy. There's just too much going on. I've got a lot on my plate. Or it could be that ingratitude takes a different form. It's not so much that you're so busy, but there's almost a sense that you deserve it. That's really more what was going on with the nine. I mean, they grew up in the, they grew up in the, the Jewish law and the faith and, 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 the, and, and the Old Testament books. They had it all. They had the knowledge. They'd probably been trained, many of them. And as they're running along, they experience this cleansing power of God going through their body. They see they're healed. And as they're going along, they could easily have thought this. Boy, I am so glad that I stood outside that village at that corner at that time. Just think, I was thinking of going out this, this day and doing a little bit of hunting. But I chose instead to stand there in unbelievable as I'm standing there. I see this miracle worker coming. The rest of them are a little shy. I'm kind of getting closer than the hundred feet. I'm up about 50. I'm really brave. I'm courageous. And I even choose to shout out. And I'm calling on him. And he hears me. Because we're all yelling. Boy, I am so grateful. To who? I think that's one of the biggest dangers of the church. I'm so grateful. Man, look what God I'm doing. I do this and I do that and I show up and I do this. All these things. And you, you, you forget the fact and maybe you never even have experienced the reality of the condition of your own sin and soul so that you don't even know. It's just now, it's really a bunch of goodnesses that are really your sin that keep you from God. It, it was their goodness in that sense, possibly, that caused them to run away from Jesus rather than towards Him. Now, I just want you to really pause for a second and think very, very seriously. I don't care if you've grown up in the church. I don't care if at some point you had some kind of experience. Do you deeply know what it means to be a foreigner, alien, outside, because of who you are and the condition of your heart and your sin? 
apart from God. Enough to say, I gotta, I gotta return. I gotta get close. I gotta be close to Jesus. And I'm also amazed at these odds because the small percentage of those who gave thanks, when you, when you think about it, it's enlightening. It all, it all changes its color a bit when you think of the response of the one. Look how this one responds. Luke writes, he makes sure we know he's a foreigner. He's an alien. He's a Samaritan. He, he, he puts it in the sentence in such a way that it stands out. The one least expected, because you might expect the one who has it all, to come and give thanks. You would expect one of the nine, but the one least expected returns and gives thanks. I was thinking about this, and an illustration came to mind. It's one that I had read. Um, the author and, and business consultant, Larry Julian, tells this wonderful story in, in his book called The Clarity in the Crisis. And uh, I heard this also when he was here at the church and shared some business and, and some just basic consulting things for a life in crisis. And so he tells about an interesting story, and I was going to give it, and I thought, no, Larry, why don't you come and just share that from your own words? Thank you. Good morning. So I'll take you back to 1992, and uh, I just started my business. It was a tough time, and uh, it was difficult because I had to have back surgery. And having that back surgery, the good news was everything turned out fine. But what was very frustrating to me is uh, this surgeon group that was based here in the Twin Cities, they were treating me like a spine and not a person. So I was very frustrated by that. They were never asked, you know, asked questions of me, but they're looking at my back. They're, you know, instead of looking at me, they're around here, and instead of Larry, it's L5 over here. So I was frustrated with this. So, like I said, the surgery went well, and after the surgery, I went to the CEO of this medical group, and I said, you know, I'd like to do a customer service program for your surgeons. So the CEO says, well, I'll go, che- I'll go check, and I'll get back to you. So he gets back to me, and he says, well, uh, yeah, they'd like to do this, but they want to do this for free. So I was really frustrated by this. I mean, here are these guys. They've got all this money in the world. They want me to do it for free, but I said, you know what? I'll do it. I will do it. So the big day comes, and I have this uh, training session with these nine or ten surgeons, and it was the worst, most contentious meeting I've ever had in my life. I mean, these people were all up in arms. They're going, oh, time is money. We can't do that. Like this. And it was one of these things where, I mean, I was ushered out more like the bums rush. It was one of these things, and I'm just out the door. So I am so frustrated. I remember leaving. This is in downtown Minneapolis. It's in April. So it's rainy, it's slushy, it's still cold, there's still snow on the ground, it's muddy. And I am so frustrated with these guys. I am just like this, and I was just, had this tension in my neck. But I, I had to go to another appointment. I was late, and my shoes were just muddy and slushy and wet. So I had to, I was looking for a shoe shine. And so underneath, I can't remember exactly the building, but underneath is an escalator, and this very elderly gentleman, he was about 85 years old, a guy named Jake, shine guy, and I just race up there and like this, and I hop up on the chair, and literally I am on this chair, and I am just, my, I think there's steam rising from my head. I'm so frustrated. And so at this point, Jake had not said a thing. 
And so Jake, he's just very slowly, very meticulously. First, he takes the brush, dips it into the soapy water. He's washing my feet. He takes a towel and he starts drying them off. And then he takes that wax and he's rubbing my feet. And I see this tension like this. And all of a sudden, I've just the tension is leaving me like just my body. Everything is just relaxing. And so he had not said a word. And then all of a sudden, I'm just looking down on this guy, old guy in the bald head. And he goes, boy, the Lord sure is good. And I'm going, what are you talking about? What? What? And he just describes. He describes a life where he's born in a barn. He's in abject poverty, had a very difficult life. But everything out of his mouth was of love and of joy. He had love, love of his children, the joy in what he did, the excellence of which he did it. It was unbelievable. And so there I was at this chair, and this was a defining moment for me because I'm looking at and I'm saying, okay, here are these guys over here seemingly having everything, yet they had nothing. And here's Jake over here seemingly had nothing, yet he had everything. This, I understood that Jake got it. He understood what life really meant. This was life that is truly life. So it was a huge, huge impact on my life. So the irony or the rest of the story here is, is that I write, I'm so moved about Jake. I wrote about Jake in my first book, God is my CEO. And so now it's five years later and I've been telling the Jake story for years. Five years later, and I realized, Jake, he's, he's washing my feet. Hello, I didn't even remember or see this. And it's a demonstration of Jesus in action, just who he was. And what struck me was, is that I learned more in a three-minute encounter with Jake than I could have taken if I took a one-week course on leadership or servant leadership. Jake was the ultimate leader by example, just by who he was. And it had such an incredible impact on me where I look now on just the small things in life, the actions that we do, have such a big impact on others. So it's not just our, ourselves and our well-being as relates to gratitude, but the impact that we make on others just by being who we are and showing gratitude to our Lord Jesus. So thank you very much. Thank you, Larry. I wanted Larry to share that story because... I just think of the incredible power in a life that doesn't just give lip service of thanks, but is one of life service. So that even in some ways, the most mundane task of washing feet and polishing shoes changes a life. I just I look at this and I go, it's just amazing to me. Here is this guy who is thankful from his heart. He's running along. He experiences the love and healing power of Jesus flow through his body. And he could have been a legalist and said, you know, I better just go and, and I better do like he said. But instead, he, he, love overwhelms you to do what God in your heart he calls you to do. He turns around and he, he has to go back. And, and all these guys experience the gift of God. Every one of them, through, through a, a bit of faith, experienced a miracle healing. But one guy was touched deep in his soul and his heart. You know how you know that? He runs back to Jesus. And, 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 and the way it's described is just, I think, incredible. 
There's something all out about a life that has been touched deep in their core. And they understand their sin and their own condition. They understand that they were headed for a life of selfishness for eternity into hell. And that life has been changed and been touched by a God who has now turned them around. So now their life is not one of just lip service and and attending and, and doing things like that. It's a life that says, I surrender everything all to you. And you read it because here's this guy. He comes back and says, one of them, when he saw he was healed. Couldn't, couldn't be a legalist. Couldn't, he had to turn around and he had to come back. And not only this, you find out exactly where his heart was. He wasn't praising anyone but God, it says, in a loud voice. He's shouting. He's so excited. And he doesn't care what anybody thinks. He throws himself at the feet of Jesus. Imagine, he's just there. Because he has experienced something in the depth of his being. And he thanked him. And we're, we're given this note. He was a Samaritan. I honestly believe that people often who feel the greatest shame and feel furthest and, and the ones that we can even look down on are the ones sometimes when they experience the love of God through us, their lives. I, they just can't believe it. So here this guy comes back and Jesus picks him up, raises him up, and he says, now I want you to go. Here's what's really interesting. To the other ones, it says they were cleansed in Luke. You read On their way, they were cleansed. That was a surface thing. It was a physical thing. That allowed them to get back into a social network and, and emotionally and all these other things. But this one, he says, rise and go. Your faith has made you well, whole. It has restored you in a relationship with the God who loves you. So that now he, in right relationship with God, can begin to get right with every other relationship. We settle. We, we, we cry out often for, for surface things. Now, God, help my finances. God, would you, would you help? I'm not feeling well. And I'm not saying those aren't good. God loves those. He, he healed nine. He cleansed them. The word is cleansed there. But one, he touched so deep in their, in, in their heart and soul. Because this person understood as a Samaritan, a foreigner, an alien, how far he was from God. And then he experienced through Jesus the love of his father that instead of being far, he's the only one who wanted to draw close. And I just ask you, what are the odds of thanksgiving in your heart and life? Is it just a lip thing or is it a life thing? Is it something where you go, God, when Jesus says at the very end, he makes these statements in verses 17 and 18. He says, Jesus asked, we're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was not one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Are you one of the ten? Jonathan Edwards says the difference between believing that God is gracious And tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual sense of its sweetness. The difference between believing that God is gracious and actually tasting and experiencing that God is gracious is as different as the rational belief, the head knowledge that honey is sweet and the actual experience of tasting it and having it in your life.
And I was thinking about it, and I thought, well, let's just make that more real. The difference between knowing the grace of God and truly experiencing the grace of God, having an intellectual understanding of it and actually tasting, experiencing it so that it has changed your life is the difference between knowing about a Thanksgiving meal and, and being, having heard about it and actually sitting down and enjoying the feast. And Jesus wants everyone to enjoy the feast. So if you know the condition of your heart and you're willing to say, God, I'll, I'll set aside whatever to come before you and to give you my heart. He wants to live there. And he wants to use that grateful, surrendering response to touch the Larrys and the Kevins and the Marys and Julies and everyone else. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to sing a simple song. You're probably just going to need to listen to the verse the first time through, but it is really simple. And we'll sing it together a few times and then I'll pray.